The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday morning, 9.45 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. Some of the most moving stories in our nation's history are the stories of our Medal of Honor winners. It's the, the highest honor that a soldier can be decorated with in our military. And the stories of valor and courage and heroism behind these, these Medal of Honor that have been given to men and women is they're really moving and stirring. And I want to share one with you in particular. It comes from the Korean War. And this individual was awarded the Medal of Honor uh, posthumously after he had died in 2013. But I want to tell you a story because he's kind of unique. He was awarded the Medal of Honor, but he never fired a shot during the entire war. It's unique because he was actually a chaplain. His name is Father Father Capon. Actually, here's a picture of Father Capon. He uh, was awarded the Medal of Honor because of continued acts of of bravery and heroism. It was late in the fall, end of October, early November, when he was on the front lines. He would continually come to the front lines to minister to the soldiers there. And there was a group of about 2,000 U.S. soldiers. And all of a sudden, an army of 20,000 communist soldiers descend on them while they're in this valley. And they were completely overrun. The the U.S. forces were completely overrun. They were trying to retreat. And there were many injured. And Father Capon, this chaplain, was continuing to run into no man's land to try and get the injured. Well, they sounded the alarm to just evacuate the area. If you were a a U.S. soldier, and people started to evacuate, but not Father Capon. This chaplain kept running out and trying to rescue the injured because this is what he knew would happen. As the communist forces would move in, they would take any survivors they found and they would march them to a prisoner of war camp. And if there was anyone that could not march, they were still alive, injured, but couldn't march, they would just be executed on the spot. So Father Capon knew he couldn't leave, so he kept running, trying to get the injured and bring them back so maybe they could evacuate, including one man by the name of Herbert Miller whose uh, leg had gotten partially blown off by a grenade and was just laying in a ditch. And there was a a soldier standing over him, a communist soldier that was about to shoot him. And Father Capon ran and pushes the soldier to the side. Didn't try and fight him, didn't try and kill him, just pushes him to the side, picks up the soldier and walks with him and gets in line with the other men that are going to march to the POW camp. But once they got to the camp, his bravery continued. He would continue to encourage these men and say, we're going to make it through. He called them. He almost took them under his wing. They said he was almost motherly. He called them my boys. And he would steal. He'd go and find when they weren't looking, the people running the camp, when they weren't looking, these soldiers, the enemy soldiers, he'd steal food for his men and pass it out to his men. He would hold services for them. He had Easter services for them. And he would, he would lift their spirits constantly saying, we're going to make it through, we're going to make it through. And the communist soldiers that ran that camp hate him. They hated him. They tried to indoctrinate him with uh, communist doctrines, and he refused to do that. They would make him stand outside in the freezing cold naked to just try and break his spirit, but he wouldn't be broken. He continued encouraging these men, encouraging these men, and, and eventually he developed pneumonia, 
and, and he was withering away also because of his starvation. And the communist soldiers said, okay, this is our opportunity to rid ourselves of this man. And they took him to their hospital, which was nicknamed the death house because no one ever returned from there. They're going to take him to this hospital and just let him die. And the soldiers come out of, their, out of their houses. They see that they're taking him to the death house, and they start pleading with the communist soldiers, please don't take him away, please don't take him away. And his final words to his men were, I'm going to where I've always wanted to go. He's ready to go to heaven. They watch him as he's being dragged away, and the final words his men heard him say amazingly, As he said to his captors, he prayed a blessing over him. He actually said the words of Jesus. He said, God, please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he passed away. Almost 60 years later, he was awarded the Medal of Honor. And nine men who were still alive, they were there. They wouldn't miss it. To honor this man who had been a source of salvation to them. In fact, they've looked back and they said of all the various POW camps, the camp that Father Capon was in had one-tenth the death rate. And they say it's because of Father Capon's encouraging words how he built the morale among these POWs. Now I want to ask you, do you think any of those men ever forgot what Father Capon did for them? Herbert Miller who had a man standing over ready to pull the trigger. And at the last minute, Father Capon ran in. Do you think they ever forgot what Father Capon did for them? See, here's the thing. If, if someone's been rescued in their life, someone's been rescued. Maybe they were saved out of a burning building or they were drowning and someone jumped in and pulled them out. If someone's been rescued, you never forget it. It's not just a blip on your radar. It's not just one page in your book. It changes the story of your life. When someone's been rescued, you never forget. I want to share with you another rescue story that a beautiful rescue story comes out of Mark chapter 10. If you would uh, open with me in in your booklet, you can turn into uh, part two, the sermon guide, and you'll see that it starts with Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 46, Mark chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 46. You can read it in your booklet. It'll also be up here on the screens. Here's the story. It says this, And they came to Jericho, and as he, that's Jesus, as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples. Now, we talked about this last week. What's the Greek word behind that word disciple? Mathetes. Let's say that again together. Mathetes. He's walking along with his mathetes, his disciples, and a great crowd. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Now let's just get some of these details here. Jesus is walking with a great crowd, but also there's a group within that crowd that are referred to as his mathetes. As we talked a little bit, just a little bit of a review from last week. Mathetes, that was not an uncommon term in that time period. That was a group of followers that followed a teacher. But that person was more than just a mentor or a coach. These mathetes were saying, I want to be you. I want to be just like you. And they would, live, they would follow around living their lives trying to be like this person. And Jesus had mathetes. 
In fact, some of the famous characters in the Bible, Peter, James, John, Andrew, these were his mathetes. And Jesus is saying, okay, if you want to be like me, then understand the most obvious part of my life. I'm here to die and sacrifice my life for this world. If you're wanting to be like me, come on. So there's this group of mathetes, and Jesus left them behind, and he said, I want you to make more mathetes. And that's who we are. If we're a follower of Christ, then we are a mathetes, falling after him, saying, I want to be like you, Jesus. That's the vision of our church. We're making mathetes. Jesus is leaving Jericho. There's big crowds, and there's this group of mathetes. And he says there's a, a blind beggar there. Now, just to kind of get in our minds the situation with a beggar, in this time of history, if someone has a disability like this and he's blind, there are not a lot of programs for a person like this, and it pretty much immediately means that, there, that this person's going to have to become a beggar. And so he's sitting outside of this gate, Bartimaeus, and there's people flooding by. There's a crowd flooding by. And Mark takes the time, takes the moment to tell us what his name was. This is an interesting detail. There's plenty of people that Jesus heals along the way, and we never learn his, their names. In fact, two chapters earlier in Mark chapter 8, there's another blind man that Jesus heals, and he's just referred to as a blind man, and we never know his name. And if you look at this story, um, it, there's really nothing we gain in the plot by knowing his name. And we know his name is Bartimaeus, but he doesn't just tell us his first name. He tells us essentially his last name. He tells us who his father is, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. Okay, Mark, what's the big deal? Why are you trying to make sure we know who this person is? Well, there's something in this that makes it even more emphatic that Mark wants us to know who this very specific individual is. The name Bar Timaeus. The name Bar is the Hebrew word for son of. So Mark just said, I want, there's a blind beggar here. His name is son of Timaeus. He's the son of Timaeus. Okay, Mark, what are you trying to get at? Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. Mark is trying to make sure that there's a very specific individual this story is linked to that he wants us to know why. Now, there's speculation as to why, and some scholars would say this. I think this is the most convincing. It's that the recipients of Mark's biography of Jesus, this book of Mark, the original people who got this, this biography, this, this story, this book of Jesus' life, they would have known who this person was. They said, man, that's probably the only reason that Mark takes the time to say this was son of Timaeus, son of Timaeus. This is Bar Bartimaeus. You, it's, he's essentially saying he's the Bartimaeus you know. So the recipients as this book is being circulated all around, they know who this person is. Okay, let's keep going. Let's see what happens, verse 47. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then he rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. All right, let's just describe this scene for a second. I want us to, to enter into Bartimaeus' life, okay? Let's enter into Bart's world, okay? I want you to imagine you're sitting there outside the gate. Put yourself there. You're sitting, because it says, they say to him, get up. So he, there, he's sitting down. 
and he's blind. He can't see anything. And what we find out later, this is an interesting detail about Bartimaeus that we find out, that he wasn't born blind, he went blind. Later he'll say to Jesus, let me recover my sight. So this is a situation where maybe most of his life he could see, and an accident happened, a disease happened, he loses his eyesight, and he has to become a beggar. So I want you to put yourself in Bartimaeus' place. You're sitting there. You can't see, but you hear a crowd. A crowd is rustling through. Maybe he gets pushed up against a wall. Maybe he gets stepped on. Maybe someone accidentally kicks over his cloak. All his coins are on, okay? He's holding on, and then he starts to hear whispering through the, cross, through the crowd. He hears this name, Jesus. And he thinks to himself, could it be the Jesus? And he's starting to remember, okay, I remember, I've heard stories. Okay, this Jesus, he's healed people. He's healed blind people. He's healed blind people like me. He's saying, okay, this may be my moment. Now, put yourself in in Bartimaeus' life. Okay, he has to go around all of his life. He's he's vulnerable. Okay, imagine the vulnerability of being blind in a world like this. You're sitting at the side of the road, and you, you just hear if someone puts coins. You don't see who does it, but thank you as they walk away, and they drop their coins. Maybe you've got your cloak in your lap, and you just say, asking for spare coins, and someone drops a coin in. You don't really know how much it was, but you say thank you as they go by. Maybe there's, there's people who try and sneak up and steal some of his coins without him looking, but he can't stop them, and he just shouts after them, but he doesn't know where they go. Imagine the vulnerability of being Bartimaeus. Uh, imagine being Bartimaeus and, and being so fragile because you're constantly dependent on everyone else around you. Maybe you, you, you can't go anywhere. You can't find anything without someone leading you. Maybe it's time to go home. It's the end of the day, but you can't leave yet until someone comes and gets you. Okay, imagine just the brokenness of, of a man who probably once had his sight and, and maybe he, he was a farmer and maybe he had sheep or maybe he was a, a shepherd or maybe he was a really good craftsman and he, he loved working with wood and he, or maybe he loved putting jewelry together or maybe he was a great businessman. He had a great stand in the market that he was very proud of, but now he's crushed because he's blind. He can't support his family like that anymore, so now he's a beggar. Imagine being Bartimaeus and knowing that your life has been reduced to being to sitting in the dust, begging for change. Imagine the grief of being Bartimaeus. Maybe he was married, and he realized he'd never look at his wife's face again. There were hobbies he loved doing, and he, he was still maybe for years struggling with the grief he'd never do that again. His world had changed. And he's sitting there in the dust being reduced to begging. And he says, he hears that Jesus is coming out. And he just, this is my chance. Jesus, he says, son of David. He's declaring he's the Messiah. He says, Jesus, Jesus, son of David, please, please have mercy on me. He doesn't even get up. Did you notice that? Maybe he can't get up. There's too many, too many crowds and all these people standing in front of him. And he's just sitting there hopelessly calling out, Jesus, Jesus, please have mercy. He doesn't know if Jesus has already passed him or he hasn't come yet. He's just shouting, hoping that Jesus hears him. And what do the people do? Quiet. They hush him up. Man, be quiet, man. Don't bother him, okay? You're a beggar. He pushes him away. And you know why they may have done that? Because many people in that time believed that if you were in that position, you brought it on yourself. You'd done some great sin. So Bartimaeus didn't just face the humiliation and the vulnerability and, and face the grief. He was also facing shame. Because people assumed he had done something to get himself there. So once again, they, they just shame him. Just quiet. Don't bother Jesus. Just keep this, this scum away from Jesus. It doesn't stop him, does it? He says, no, Jesus, please, please have mercy. And what does your Savior do? 
he looks at the men who just quieted him and he says, call him. And the men who just quieted him say, um, sorry about that, he, he wants to see you. I mean, take heart. Get up, come on, all right, go ahead. Your Savior stops the crowd because he hears the cries of the weak and the vulnerable. Look at what happens next. Verse 50. I want you to look up here on the screen with me. I want you to read this underlined part with me. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And I want you to think about this for a second. Mark, it's a very short passage. He's trying to convey this whole story. So we have to be very, we have to read these details very sensitively. Of all of his belongings, maybe he had a walking stick. It doesn't tell us what he did with the walking stick. It doesn't tell us if he had taken his sandals off and put them back on. He tells us what he does with his cloak. But if I'm reading the story, I, I'm less concerned about the cloak. I'd be like, okay, what did he do with all the change he'd collected? doesn't tell us that. It says what he does with his cloak. Now, why is that so important? In this time period, cloaks were very, very important to someone's life. You and I, we live in South Florida, and even though we live in South Florida, we may own several coats. But this guy, this time of period, you don't own several changes of clothes. You only own several changes of clothes if you're ultra wealthy. This is not one of those people. He's a beggar. He has a cloak. Cloaks were used for multiple things. It wasn't for fashion. A cloak was used. It kept you warm. A cloak was your heater. A cloak was your feather-down comforter at night. A cloak was something if in the cold. Okay, Jericho's in more of a desert region. It can get very cold at night. So a, a cloak kept you warm. It was instrumental. You needed your cloak. It also gets very sunny, very blistering hot, can get hot during the day. It provides shade for you during the day. Okay, this is how important a cloak was. There were laws protecting your cloak if you were in debt. Like if you needed to borrow something from a neighbor, remember it's a little bit more primitive situation, so you might give them something for collateral. Let's say I needed to borrow your ox. I don't have an ox. I will give you my donkey. Take your ox, and when I bring back the ox healthy and good shape, I can have my donkey back. I give you my donkey as collateral. If, but if I give you my cloak... There were laws at the time that protected my cloak at evening, even if I haven't returned your shovel or whatever I borrowed. In the evening, you have to bring me back my cloak anyway so that I can keep warm. It's interesting. It's not unlike some bankruptcy laws that protect your house. They protected, in this time period, your cloak because it was so instrumental. For a beggar like Bartimaeus, it might have also been his shelter. So I want you to see what he's throwing off. Way more valuable than the change he had collected that day. It's probably his most valuable possession. He throws it off, but I want you to think of something else. He's a blind man. The uh, Federation, National Federation of the Blind here in the United States on one of their websites, they give tips for people that may have suddenly gone blind, that are trying to adjust to life. And they say the number one, the first tip you need to know if you suddenly go blind is you have to get your life very, very organized. You have to get your pantries organized, your refrigerators organized, your closets organized because we take for granted that if you're looking for something, you can just open up your pantry and look around and find the peanut butter. 
But if you've recently gone blind, you can't just glance around for the things that are there. So you have to organize everything so it's in a predictable place. You have to organize a refrigerator. Some things are on one shelf, some things are on another shelf. You have to organize your clothes because you have to know predictably where it is. You have to organize your, your wallet and your bills because you can't just pull out your wallet and look through to find a 20. You can't see. We take that for granted. So one of the first things someone would do if they were blind is put it in a predictable place. But what did Bartimaeus do? He threw it. You'd think he's like, Jesus called me. Take off his, his cloak and he'd like fold it up and he'd put all the change and put, put down his, his staff and say to a friend, please just watch this for me so I can find it again and go find Jesus. He doesn't do that. He takes off his most valuable collection, throws it. Why would he do that? How is he ever going to find his cloak again? Do you realize why he did that? Because he knew when he came back, he'd be able to see. He knew when he came back, he wouldn't have to be in a predictable place. He could go find it. Incredible moment. Look look what happens next. Verse 51. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Okay, for the record... Every human being in that crowd that day knew exactly what Bartimaeus wanted Jesus to do for him. Every one of us who is reading this passage knows what Bartimaeus wants him to do for him. And remember, Jesus is very intentional what he says. Jesus never has to go back and say, Bartimaeus, that was really insensitive of me. <laughs> Dumb question. Sorry, I know what you're after. Jesus never has to do that. He's asking him very specifically, Bartimaeus, what is it that you want me to do for you? Because he wants Bartimaeus to say publicly in front of everyone, demonstrate his faith, I want to recover my sight. He wants this entire crowd to be astonished at this blind beggar who they just rejected. He wants them them to be astonished by his faith. Now look what happens next. Verse 52. And Jesus said to him, now look at this phrase here, read this with me. Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. All right, don't miss this part, this is so incredible. Jesus says, okay, Bartimaeus, go your way, Your, your faith has healed you. He heals him, he has his sight back. And he says, okay, go your way, go about your business. Go back to your life. Go pursue your dreams. Do your thing. Now imagine what's on Bartimaeus' agenda. He just got his sight back. What's going to be on your agenda? You're married, and for the first time, you can see your wife's face again. You can see her jaw drop and the tears rim around her eyes and flood down her cheeks when she sees that you can see again. Maybe he had children He had a little daughter that just was a little girl when he went blind, and now she's a young woman. Do you think that maybe the first thing he wants to see is lay eyes on his precious daughter and see her for the first time as a young woman? Maybe he had a little son, and he was a toddler, but now he's a young man, and he's running and playing sports or doing his craft, and just wants to see his his boy become a man. Maybe he he wants to go see his friends and and mess with them a little bit. He wants to walk into their house pretending to be blind, and then he's not blind and see them freak out. 
Maybe there's a hobby he used to do. It was his favorite thing, and he wants to get, get back to woodworking and see his product take shape out of the wood. Or maybe he wants to go in the marketplace and just see all the things he's only been able to smell and hear for years. What's on his agenda? Jesus says, go your way. Do your thing. And he does. He's obedient. He says, okay, I'm going to do the the thing that's most important to me. I'm going to do my thing. What does he do? He follows Jesus. See, there's nothing else since he's been rescued that's more important than following after the one that rescued him. What could possibly be more his way? He's doing his thing. His desire is to follow after Jesus. Now, when we've been rescued... When someone's been rescued, you're never the same. Bartimaeus doesn't just go home and say, yeah, I've got a good story to tell at parties. No, his life is different. It's changed. The whole story's different. And that's the way it is when someone's been rescued. I, I told you about that, the man, um, Herbert Miller, who had a soldier standing over him when Father Capon rushed in. I want you to hear his story, how he describes it decades later, how he describes the, what it was like when the man rescued him. Check out the story. If it wasn't for him, I'd be dead today. He saved my life, and he saved a lot of other people, too. My name is Herbert Miller. I was a sergeant with the 1st Cavalry Division, the 8th Cavalry Regiment, 3rd Battalion L Company in Unsan, North Korea, where the 8th Cavalry was annihilated. The Chinese and Koreans hit us and started a firefight. It was about 10.30 on the 31st of October. So we started up this ditch. We got up it probably 50, 60 feet. I got hit with a hand grenade in the leg and it tore the muscle off my leg and broke my ankle. So I laid there and I told Hettinger to go on. So he went on. That was the last I saw him until we got to prison camp. I looked up the ditch again, here they come again, so I couldn't, they saw that I was alive then. And this Korean soldier come up and he had the gun pointed between my eyes and he was ready to shoot me. About that time, I saw this GI coming from across the road. Little narrow road, probably 12 foot wide. And he come to where I was and uh, he pushed the guy aside and moved his rifle away from me picked me up and carried me. And I kept telling him, put me down, you can't carry me. He says, if I put you down, they'll kill you. And I found out just about five minutes after that that he was Father Capon. He carried me for, I forget, probably better part of two weeks. He'd carry me, then I would get down. He'd let me down, I'd hop along on one leg and he'd have his arm around me. and carried me along like that, and then he picked me up and carried me again. And this went on till we got to Death Valley. I give the Lord the credit. The Lord must have directed him across that road to where I was, because why would he come across there just to save one man like that? And after we got in prison camp, there was a soldier there had to piece of cloth wrapped around his leg where he was wounded and he had a little Gideon Testament in it and I asked him if I could read it and he said yeah of course I'd never been to church or anything much 
So in the back of that is a plan of salvation. And I give my heart and soul to Jesus Christ, and he saved me there in prison camp. And the true father came, and I made it through a prison camp, and the Lord brought me through. He had a job for Father Capon to do, and he did it. So I come back home. I've been going to church ever since. And I thank him every day, every day, for doing, helping me through there. Without him, I'd be gone. Someone who's been rescued, you never forget it. You never forget it. Isn't that our story? That's our story. Remember the uh, story, the song, um, Amazing Grace? Once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That's our story. We were blind on the side of the road. Vulnerable. Life at a dead end. Shamed. We, we, our, our lives had crashed and burned. We'd come to a place where we've got nothing left, or maybe we had everything and realized we had nothing. We were empty. We we're, we're dependent, and we're just, we, we one day hear that there's a Jesus who saves. And we cry out to Jesus, and we just say, Jesus, we, we want to. There's a welling in our soul that wants to cry out to Jesus. We want to call out to him and say, Jesus, have mercy on me. Save me. And we want to cry out to him, but all of a sudden there's something inside. There's voices that tell us to be quiet. You're not worth God's attention. You think Jesus is going to save you? No, you can't do that. You, you grew up this religion. You can't do that. You, there's all these things, these voices inside of us that say, don't call out. Shh, quiet. You don't deserve God's forgiveness. You think God wants anything to do with you? But something comes out over us and we push through and we say, Jesus, no. Uh, you shout over those voices, Jesus, have mercy on me. And what kind of Savior do we have? He stops the crowd and he singles out where we're at when we're, we're, we're vulnerable and we're the ones that are crying out over the crowd and he calls us to himself. And what do we know? We know what it means to run to Jesus. We're going to have to throw off our cloaks. There's the things in our life we know that we're going to have to give up to Jesus. All right, I'm, I know if I come to Jesus, I'm going to have to do things his way. Relationships are going to have to be his. My sexuality, I'm going to handle like his. My goals for this life, I'm going to hand it over and let him guide. I'm going to have to handle my, my money, my time, my career. All of it I hand up to him. I'm going to have to do everything his way. But something says, okay, and we throw down our cloaks and we run to Jesus. And he brings us to this point where he says, okay, but I want you to make a public declaration of faith. And we say, absolutely, I just need you to save me. And we publicly declare, it's not this quiet little thing we do off on, the, off on our own. No, it's something that we tell our friends and our family and we declare it. We, we get baptized in front of the whole church and we declare what we're doing. And Jesus says, your faith has healed you. And we realize that Jesus' death on the cross where he gave up his life, he paid for our sins, he removes our shame, he's forgiven us permanently, washed our sins away, past, present, and future. And now we have someone that we follow after. And Jesus says, that's a free gift. So go your way. And what's our way? We can't help but follow Jesus. In fact, the Bible says, if you had a Jesus encounter, but then you went off and your way was to go back to the rest of your old life, 
you may not really have been rescued because once someone is rescued, they never forget. Inside your booklet, it, it says it like this. A mathetase is rescued and never recovers. A mathetase is rescued and has never, never recovered. Church, that's what our, our vision is. Is there anything that we could long more to be a part of than to be a part of a, a, a movement, a church, where people are being rescued, hard hearts are being broken, people who are lost are being found, blind are, are seeing, being a part of people who are meeting Jesus, realizing that what matters in life is not what they do, but what Jesus did, and are being rescued and then following after him. Maybe that's you today. You might be in one of a, a couple different places. You might be saying, you know, here's where I'm at. I, I think I was rescued a long time ago, and maybe today you need to remember, man, but we never recover. Remember that you've been rescued every day. Celebrate it. Thank him every day. Make it be what spurns, spurs on your entire life. Some of you maybe were rescued recently. Maybe you were rescued at one of our Christmas services, or maybe you raised your hand or prayed the prayer. And for some of you, it's time to make a public, bold declaration. It's time for you to be baptized and on February 22nd, in about a month, we're going to have a baptism celebration. And maybe what you need to write down is say, write baptism on your connection card or just check off the box and say, I want my own declaration publicly with the church seeing and the church celebrating that I have been rescued. But maybe for some of you today, you're saying, I, I'm done with just dabbling with Christianity. I'm done with just trying to be good. I need to be rescued by Jesus once and for all my sin washed away. Maybe you can make that decision today. We've been sharing stories about being rescued. And I just want, as we're wrapping things up, I want you to see one more story. A story, a rescue story out from our own church community, a guy by the name of John. Check out his rescue story. You know, my life prior to being rescued was one where I do just about anything I felt like doing. Anytime I felt like doing. I mean, I, I spent almost, you know, 57 years of my life doing stuff that didn't really matter. Now my life matters. Uh, my daughter mentioned, Dad, you have to go to this church. You have to go go visit this church because there's something happening there. And I said, yeah, it's just like any other church. She says, no, Dad, you got to go. As I got to the door, I just felt a different kind of feeling. The moment I walked into West Vines, um, the moment the door opened, uh, of course, somebody greeted me at the door, and um, I walked in, and people were looking at me like, hey, welcome. And I'm saying, are they talking to me? And I looked around, you know, and yes, they were they were talking to me, and they were smiling, and, um, and you know, shook my hand, and... I'm saying, well, this doesn't happen to me at church. Uh, you know, the other churches I've gone to, they see you. Yes, they say hello, and you're just left to go find a seat, and um, and that's it. You know, but you know, the feeling was just unlike any other. And I remember coming to church one Sunday, and I filled out that connection card. You have to do the connection card. I filled out the connection card, and I think I checked off, um, you know, uh, I'm not sure what the box was, but, 
you know, being aware of who God is, but want to know more. And then I got a call and, you know, he told me about how great it was to have me and, you know, can we get together? And I said, sure. And then we went to lunch one day and um, we were in this booth together and after a series of <clears throat> discussions, he looked at me and he says, really, what would stop you right now from giving your life to God? And, uh, <clears throat> you know, I'm feeling, <clears throat> a feeling came over me that <clears throat> I've never, ever felt before. So much so that <clears throat> I'm trying not to, you know, I, I started, I didn't start crying, I started bawling. Tears are running down my face, snot is running from my nose, and, and, and I felt the Holy Spirit, yes. So, I mean, that moment I'll never, ever forget, never. You know, I can expressly say this, that I love God. I never thought I could say that before. I serve by being a greeter, um, giving somebody the experience I had when I first came. Because um, I know what that felt like. Because uh, the moment you get to the door, if you don't get that kind of feeling like, you know, you're welcome, like you're wanted, you know, um, I'm sure that can be a turnoff to a whole lot of people. So. I try to serve where, you know, when I see someone coming in, it doesn't matter who it is, that I let them know that, hey, you know, it's great to have you. I know that in doing what I'm doing, I'm aiding God's kingdom. So being rescued is all about uh, just turning your life over, giving him the remote control, and just let him do what he wants to do. You just simply have to have the will to follow. Just let him lead you and just follow. I have definitely been rescued. Amen. Maybe today is your day. Maybe this is the day you'll never forget. When Jesus stopped and called to you to himself. You said, today is my day. I've been rescued for eternity by Jesus. You say, Jesus, you died on the cross, saved me for eternity. I believe that today. Today is my day. We're going to end our service this morning celebrating our rescue through communion. It's something Jesus told us to do. He passed around on the night that before he was crucified and before he took out his disciples to the Mount of Olives, He's passed around a cup, and he said, it was full of wine, and he said, this is a symbol of my blood that's going to be poured out for you. I want you to drink it and remember that I rescued you by my blood. Then he passed around, he broke bread, and he passed it around. He said, this is a symbol that my body is broken. I, I'm, my body will be broken to rescue you. And we're going to take this and celebrate this today. But if today, please hear me this morning. If today is your day, you're saying today is my day, I'm going to be rescued, then I want you to do something a little bit different. When you come up here, you're going to find uh, there's a set of plastic cups with juice. 
But then there's a, a few up here that are little olive wood cups that have juice in them. And if today, the plastic cups are for the rest of us, but if today is your day that you say, this is my day, I am being rescued, then what I want you is I want you to take that wooden cup and you can drink the juice and then save that cup to commemorate that today is your day and never forget it. Now, some of you are saying, oh, I kind of want one of those wooden cups too. Can I take one? <laughs> Just remember, if you do that, you might be lying and stealing during communion. Okay? This is for those of you this morning, you're saying, today is my day. That's for you. In just a moment, what's going to happen, I'm going to tell you when you're ready to come down to the center aisle. Some of you can go to, your, go to the back. Some of you can come, there's stations in the back. Some of you can come to the aisles and come forward. You're going to take a cup. You're going to take the, the piece of bread, and you're going to drink it, and you're going to eat it on your way back to your seat, and then we're going to close with a song. If you're today saying, look, I'm not sure where I'm at with Jesus yet, that's fine. I'd ask you just to hold off. You can just stay in your seat, and I totally respect that, but this is a proclamation for those who said, I have been rescued by Jesus Christ. And here's our prayer, that some of you are going to proclaim that you've been rescued for the first time this morning. Let's celebrate this together. You can begin coming forward. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you'd like to speak with someone about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call us at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.